I'm a little bit ahead, and I don't have four month old twins, which would be extra fun right now. But uh, yeah, exactly. I, I I sort of feel where you're coming from. Yeah, you get it. I do. Yeah. I've got two cats, and I don't know that they compare to having <laughs> <laughs> to having children. <laughs> I think they kind of occupy themselves, don't they? Uh, for the most part, yeah. You know, way way harder. <laughs> they are self cleaning, though. Yeah, exactly. Trying to teach my toddler that. Hi everyone. I'm Andrew, and I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. And today we've got a very interesting episode lined up that um, we actually did a, a quick topic switch in the last five minutes before starting recording this, but uh, <laughs> we have a, uh, a local bike fitter and physiotherapist who I've worked with um, over the past couple months. And uh, he works for, or he owns Intrinsy Physiotherapy. And we have John Gabay joining us today. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Really excited to chat to you both. So initially we laid out this, uh, this range of questions that, that we'll get into, but just talking about how physiotherapy ties into, um, into training and things like that. But the, the topical question or the topical discussion point that came up in the last minute or two was really, what do people do during lockdown? Because all of these emergency services um, or all the, the non-essential services have been shut down in Canada and a lot of places around the world. So there are a lot of people who are stuck training at home. And they may be injured or they may be doing something that could lead to injury. And you're not really left with many options in terms of recovery. So we were starting to chat about this off air. And then we said, well, hold on, let's, uh, let's actually tie this into the show because this is really relevant for a lot of people. So, um, so John, um, why don't you give us a few thoughts about uh, just what we were talking about before and how people can deal with these kind of injuries? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I think um, first thing to... to let people know is that most rehab facilities are still offering virtual appointments. So in, in 2020, the world is a lot smaller than it used to be. We are connecting more virtually every day without realizing. And with this latest social distancing, we, we have the platforms and the tools in place to be able to just get on that very quickly. So most, most clinics are offering virtual appointments. I'd encourage anyone listening to, to look to their rehab team and see if they are doing that. Um, that would be the first thing I would point out. I think it's it, there's, there's still a huge amount that we can do and that we can work with people on um, at this time. And not to lose sight of, as you mentioned, that if you're working from home on your laptop on the couch, for example, or you've just renewed your uh, subscription to Zwift, these these have challenges. They have knock on effects if you're not used to doing that. And the the principles of nipping things in the bud and training smarter, not harder. These type of things will apply more than ever. So um, there's a there's a lot that can be done virtually. Most seasoned therapists will have a very good idea of what's going on by the time they've finished the the interview section or the talking, so to speak. Um, and 
that part is not restricted virtually. So there's a lot that can be helped there. I think in terms of just general advice for this period of isolation is everyone is dealing with a lot of uncertainty right now, whether it be their their work situation, their leisure situations in this in a lot of these um, clients on on the call we don't know what races will be on what races won't be the most important thing i would say is remember your why focus on the why what why do you train why do you race what is it you're cycling for what is it you're doing triathlon for don't lose sight of that is it health is it well-being is it competition is it to better yourself with pbs whatever that why is put it front and center every day so you in a time where you're not able to get out and and feel like you're progressing, you you remember what you're what you're fighting for, so to speak. Um, that's something that's quite interesting from my point of view as well, and something I've experienced is just this roller coaster of emotions. Where initially it was thinking, okay, like my my days can be streamlined a little bit. I won't be going into the office, but I can still get a lot done at home. Um, but now it's turned into this uh, this feeling of desperation some days where it's like you need that social contact and you just need to breathe fresh air. Um, so I think, yeah, keeping in mind the goals and the focus of why I'm training and why I enjoy the sport is uh, first and foremost in my mind in, in keeping that motivation up because not having not having a hundred percent guarantee that any of the races that, uh, that I've signed up for this year will actually occur. It makes it a little bit harder to keep that, uh, that motivation going, but just trying to think of the, the base reason, like why I'm involved in the sport is, is what really keeps me going. I think. Yeah. Super important. I think it's, it's something that we focus on with all clients that we see. And that is why are you here? Why, what brings you in for physio? What brings you to a triathlon club? What, what gets you on your bike? Most people's answer superficially is not the not the accurate answer when i say to someone why are you here for physio they'll say my knee hurt that's not why they're here their knee is not the reason the knee is stopping them from their why which is i can't ride my bike that's their why their ability to commute on their bike their ability to do a grand fondo to go biking with their grandkids whatever that's their why not not the knee not the shoulder not the the pain that they're experiencing those are the barriers to their why and I think that's one of the most important things that in rehab we we fall short on in focusing on a part of the body or chasing pain instead of focusing on what does the what does the person want what's the bigger picture why and that right now is is essential more than ever. So I think this actually ties into my first question pretty nicely, just just looking at the idea of prehab versus rehab. And I know this has been getting more attention lately, but just trying to avoid injuries or avoid any discomfort before it actually becomes an issue, before it comes something that you have to, uh, you have to spend a lot of time treating and it makes you avoid doing activities or doing what you enjoy. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think the, the prehab versus rehab is starting to be the, slowly unfortunately but slowly becoming the new norm and it's been around for a long time um it's definitely something that we focus on for for a while now and that's that's being more preventive that's going back to the root of what physiotherapy is and that's maximizing potential and preventing any unnecessary hardship so really it's the, the analogy i start with often is if you came home and you realized that your house had flooded 
the first thing you do if, if your house is flooding is not grab towels and mop up the water. The first thing you do is think, where is this leak coming from? That's more prehab, stop the cause, not chase pain, as opposed to focus on the pain, focus on the site of, of discomfort and mop up all that water. So really it's, it's, a, it's a case of looking at the bigger picture and seeing why is this happening and looking more so at what you're going to put your body through and say, what does that involve? And it's quite humbling in cycling and triathlon because more, than, more often than not, the injuries are overuse and by definition, therefore, avoidable. And that's humbling. When you get injured and you realize, I kind of did this to myself, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult pill to swallow. And, and for your team, for your coach, for your therapist, it's difficult to explain why you didn't avoid that. So that's the first thing I would say in terms of the, the culture changing to be more preventative versus um, reactive. Um, and it just goes to that notion of training smarter, not harder. You don't get to races. You don't get through Ironmans and, and whatever your challenges are by just brute effort. And more often than not, it's being strategic. It's being um, quite calculated and, and training smart as opposed to just give more effort. So I would say almost a great example of this is currently what I'm going through and probably what a lot of people are going through right now is my home office ergonomically isn't really set up the same way that, uh, that I was in my office office. But um, I've noticed that my back is starting to get a little sore over the last couple of days. So the, uh, the reactive measure would be just how do we make my back less sore, but the, the proactive or the prehab would I guess be just how do we change the ergonomics and prevent that from becoming an issue in the future? Exactly that. And, and doing it in a proactive way of saying, and instead, of, instead of just trying to sit taller, let's say, let's build in safeguards. Let's say, let's make sure you're hydrating as much as you need to so that without realizing you're going to think, you might be stuck into your work and really engrossed in it and then think, oh, I need to pee because I'm drinking more. That's a perfect reminder to get up and move without thinking, oh, I need to do my rehab. So it's more functional. It's more real life. And it's got that knock-on effect of better hydration and, and all the health benefits from that as well. So yes, set up for success. Set your work environment up. Set the ergonomics, um, whether it be the, the seat, the height, the computer, etc. but also put safeguards in place to make sure that you get up and move. The big thing with posture is more so, yes, if you're on a bike or yes, if you're in a position for eight hours, you want to, you need to be comfortable. But from an ergonomic perspective with work, it's more don't stay in the same position for, for longer than you need to. That's more so what we focus on with posture outside of biking. And I want to tack on a little bit of a of a side question to Anders. It uh, had to do with what you said earlier in your kind of your opening statement, where you see a lot of folks, obviously uh, because of uh, lockdowns or social distancing, going to train inside. Specifically with uh, folks that have maybe were starting to go outside and riding outside a lot, or in warmer climates that weren't, you know, Alberta or Ontario, or doing quite a bit of riding already and had been for a while, and now they're switching from maybe a fair amount of riding and running outdoors to 
no riding outdoors and all riding indoors and uh, what some of those potential hangups could be? And then how do you how would you mitigate that through uh, a prehab program, as Andrew suggested? You will shift in focus. I think the main thing is if you've got a base right now, your body will be able to deal with that adaptation from indoor to outdoor with the right with the right processes in place. I think generally speaking with an injury prevention perspective, that one of the most important things in my opinion is adaptation and respecting adaptation. And what I mean by that is for, injury happens when force exceeds capacity. And those that don't get injured have progressively built up that base so that they don't take big leaps outside of that base. Anything that they do is is within reach of the base that they've built, albeit progressively growing, but it's, they don't go zero to 60 overnight. So if you're gearing up for outdoor, I wouldn't necessarily go, or vice versa, I wouldn't do everything cold turkey. I wouldn't go from three or four months indoor training to every ride outdoor from now on. And if you are going to do that, I'd consider the fit implications of it as well. And vice versa, the difference between running on treadmills and outdoors or vice versa. But that's the reality for some people is that for, you know, this hasn't happened in Ontario yet. I don't know about Alberta, but certainly in European countries, there's been a restriction on outdoor riding, for example, so that you'd have people who are maybe in Southern Europe who've probably been riding for a couple of months now, potentially. Uh, and let's say they're riding quite a bit to now being locked in their homes. And if they want to continue the training in a perfect world, I agree with you entirely that you, you'd want to have a transition plan from outdoor to indoor. And in fact, with, with my folks, because especially people who live in big, busy cities, we ride indoors all year round, like for, um, for high quality, uh, midweek rides, but for people who just, who, because of the COVID circumstances now cannot ride outdoor at all what are the risk factors of of going you know completely indoors and let's let's keep the uh, the question about the bike specifically well, i had a client like this who um who was in the uae and uh hated indoor training and they have really good facilities he's in dubai uh for outdoor riding and he's always been riding outdoors and then he had to go buy a trainer and jump indoors and he he had some trouble adapting because it just it was a very novel stimulus as as you i think very correctly pointed out so how do you avoid doing too much too soon or in in your words how do you avoid having four succeed capacity um i think some of this i I preface with if you've done your if you've done this if you train smartly and your fit is dialed in it's not going to be a night and day difference you're going to notice it but i'm not i'm not worried about detrimental effects okay if you don't have that then it really is about discipline. It's focusing on the there's, – there's no hard and fast rule when it comes to adaptation, unfortunately, in terms of research. The best – I would say the best practice right now is not change more than 10% um, too soon. But, again, there's no research to back that. It's, it's more best practice. So if you are switching from – if you're switching night and day from outdoors to indoors – it might just be first listening to your body, make sure that you feel comfortable. And, you know, in that scenario, I would probably say give give a day or two off in between so you watch for any, any fallout. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that that makes that that makes a ton of sense. And from my own experience with myself and with uh, the folks I I coach, kind of the biggest uh, the two biggest takeaways I find um, one is there is an uh, it's anecdotal, but it seems to be anecdotal across the board, especially with people who are not well adapted to riding indoors, who are not used to it. There is up to a ten percent drop in kind of you know power threshold. Uh, and ability to hold kind of higher intensity work um, in the same position as you would outdoors. Uh, so the 10% numbers uh, number comes from our chat with David Tilbury Davis a few weeks ago. Um, I find that it's somewhere between 5 and 10% depending on adaptation. So one thing I would do is change your targets for, for folks. So if you're doing intensity work, you may want to drop them a little bit until you adapt to the indoor position. Um, and the other factor is for longer rides, uh, it is possible to set up your long, you know, indoors, there are no interruptions out of outdoors. You're always going to hit some lights. And even if you live out in the country, there are always going to be little breaks and downhills and things where you can relax and, and, you know, sit up, but indoors it's possible to set it up such that you never have to, you know, you could ride for six hours indoors in arrow if, if you're a masochist. Uh, so it's important, I find to build in little breaks within, you know, within the ride itself, if you're doing longer stuff and especially if you're not super used to it. Yeah, definitely. And again, depending on where you are in the season, I mean, you, you said those points very well, whether it's slightly down, um, downscaling the volume based on the fact, as you said, that you're going to have more breaks outside, whether it's if you're earlier on in the season and break up the rides, break, break up the long ride with, with some strength drills in between just to get you off. And it's almost like a reset to your body to, to say, feeling okay here. Is anything, is anything niggling at me? And if you're listening to your body and you do those type of things, then you should be fine. In terms of listening to your body, um, this is a trap I've fallen into many times, but um, just because of the time frame of delayed or just the very name of it, but delayed onset muscle soreness um, takes one to two days to kind of peak. So I know so many people who have gone out and because they're feeling good, they'll do a ride that's twice as long as they've done indoors or something like that. Um, or you haven't been to the gym in two months and then you say, oh, I'm going to do my full workout regimen that I did before because I'm feeling great. And then a day and a half later, you can't move. Um, but after the workout, you feel fatigued, but fine otherwise. So, um, so I think the, what both of you have been saying about making the changes slowly, um, and just, uh, adapting to it is, is very important because you can very easily overshoot your capacity by just going kind of by the, you know, the skin of your teeth and, and saying, I've got this, I used to do it, it's fine. Yeah, and I think the other piece to that point is that we shouldn't be looking at these situations as isolated cases and it shouldn't be any, on any occasion, I think this is the last ride I'm ever going to do, in which case, if you take the mindset of, okay, I'm going to get on my bike three times this week, then you don't need to attack everything in one session. <laughs> Yeah, you can take on a weekly goal or a monthly goal into three three times a week and it's a lot more manageable for your body to adapt to. If we're looking at this isolation period, we're not thinking, I don't think anyone is projecting a period of, of isolation or lockdown being more than once, two months at this point without a break, in which case that's a lot more bite-sized and manageable if you if you are trying to get volume in there, if you're trying to get two to three rides a week, you don't need to then make huge volumes for, for 
in individual workouts. I think that's a that's an excellent point, John. And I think that's something that people don't they don't appreciate it enough that you don't the it's I don't know maybe it's a holdover of the the really ridiculous no pain no gain kind of training mentality which I yeah. railed against on a number of occasions on the show, um, but also I think there's the just the the intrinsic competitiveness of humans especially the humans that tend to gravitate to these kind of sports that can be you know it can be good because it motivates us to do stuff but it also can be detrimental i know riding on zwift for example if you're doing structured workouts you know you're doing your you're doing your own thing but if you're ever riding you know, with others, or if if it's a race or an event, or if it's just a free ride, there's that kind of you know, it's it's almost an irresistible urge to compete with you know Bill in in Australia, uh, who's who's on the who's on the platform at the same time that you are, and it's it's tough to I find it's tough to uh, short circuit that kind of you know brain wiring for us. Yeah, definitely, and I think it's just trying to manipulate it back to the why and yeah, and not part of that. I think that's the really important thing with. Especially, I think triathletes, especially bikers as well, cyclists as well. Um, you're kind of a breed if you do that. I, I feel, and they're, they're triathletes and, and cyclists more than most have a why, a very specific why, and it's just tapping into what that is and and making it work in your favor. I think that's it is exactly the old cliche of, as I said, train smarter, not harder. Um, and again, now more than ever, and just, just being disciplined to the big picture of if there are going to be some later season races, I want to be ready for it and not blow all my matches now. And it's no different to, to even visualizing a race and saying, do you want to go in that first breakaway or do you want to, how many matches do you have? Whether it be for a race or whether it be for a race season. Sure. And it's just being strategic on that. So we've talked a little bit about the the why of this, and I think everyone listening to the show has a very definite why. Um, but in terms of figuring out how to make sure you get to the why, how, how you get to your next race, um, you've taken a pretty unique role at this, uh, or maybe it's becoming less unique now, but uh, I was very impressed by it. But just the integration of physiotherapy into bike fitting to make sure that you do stay healthy and that you can train repeatedly and without concern about injury. Um, so what's maybe just go through how you, you apply physiotherapy to bike fitting in general. Yeah, I think it's, um, it started, I guess, just following, following a dream and just doing what we, we love doing. Um, I think that's the first thing that I would point out in terms of an advantage for us or something that helps us with our practices that we are Spencer and I who do the, bike fitting for, for the clinic. We are, I'm a triathlete, he's a cyclist. So we get it in, in, in the why we get it in what it's like to feel in a race versus training and, and the rationale for it. We, we understand that if something's niggling you, it doesn't mean you just stop like cold Turkey. So we understand the breed. And I think that's important off the bat because I, I wouldn't say the same with hockey for example and obviously not being Canadian I if, if someone came to me and their passion was hockey I can treat them for sure but I wouldn't be the best person I wouldn't be the best fit and I owe it to them to say I can help you with the, the fundamentals but as soon as we get to sports specific I'm not your guy 
And I think that's the difference here for the bike fitting and the triathlon piece is that we are, we get it. So we try and mix our experience as physios with our biomechanical uh, knowledge of bike fitting. And for us, as you said, yes, I mean, in some ways, in some places, it's unique. In in best practice, it's not, and certainly not in whether it be Europe or other places. Um, it's it's becoming, I think, I think more and more are doing it, but it's also something you can't just um, rustle it up overnight. In that, you can't just you can't just make someone a physio if they're into biking and vice versa. You can't take someone that's a physio and say, Hey, biking sounds fun. Why don't you try it? Kind of thing. It's, it's, it has to happen organically. Um, but I mean, I think the thing for us that interests us coming into it is that we're, we like, we like efficiency. We like as, as physios, we, we want to maximize potential. That really is in the, the DNA of physio is maximizing potential and and helping the individual with their why so for us it's just mixing that sports that medical training with the understanding of the sports and then the biomechanical knowledge of of the bikes and it's just something that's very avoidable most bike injuries as i mentioned are from thousands of repetitive very close to identical movements you're fixed most of the time as in you're, you're clipped into a bike, which means you don't have huge variance in movement unless we make those changes. And that's the fun part compared to, to run assessments too, is that, which we do, but for, for the bike component of it is we can, we can manipulate those biomechanics very easily, but with, with changes and we see the difference right in front of us. So, which is a lot bit more difficult to do when you're talking about someone running where they're not fixed. How have you seen the science or the art of bike fitting evolve in the last, uh, I don't know, however long you guys have been doing it? Because uh, I've, uh, I used to do a few bike fits on the fairly low tech side of things, um, less now that I don't uh, own a studio. But uh, I've seen it, I've seen a lot of changes and it's, it's definitely an industry that I pay attention to. So I'd love to hear your take on the progression and the innovation in that industry. I think it's, I mean, it's come on a huge amount. Um, I think, and and what I would say to that is that we still use all all aspects of it, and I think it's come from people that ride eyeballing, which which shouldn't be kind of stuff. Like that's very useful. That's the first thing that we do when people come in the room is is look at them and be like, that height is just completely off. I don't even need to get <laughs> you to the um, the technology to tell you this is we're not even close right now so the first thing we want to do is is eyeball and i would say that's probably where things started with time probably moved to ipad apps to then you know for us we we went from an ipad we went from eyeballing to an ipad app that you can just download we went from there to retool we went from there to adding in the gbmi pressure mapping and we went from there to adding in the four eyes um, aerodynamic considerations that guide our screens. So we almost evolve it every year, just adding another layer to to the cake to make the, the final product that much better. It, it's not to say that we provide every client or every rider that comes in with everything. 
we might have four riders coming in in a day. One, we might not use the technology for. One, we might just go straight to GBMIs. One, we only use retail. It, it really depends on what, what they're coming in with and, and what we see in front of us. But the, the technology piece is, is it's more than ever making, it's giving the rider and, and the team the ability to control variables. As I said, biking is, it's repetitive movement of things. It, it's, um, there's low variance in technique. And what I mean by that is that you're not, as I said, when you're fixed on a bike, you don't change that much. The point at which you change is when you're uncomfortable. And if you are comfortable, which is our job to get you there, you're not going to move at all, really. In which case, as in from that fixed position, you're going to repeat that cycle thousands of times. So it's for the nerd or for the for the team that like the the nitty gritty. It's a it's a perfect fit, I'd say. Mm-hmm. How often do you see the need to go and reevaluate your bike fit? Uh, it's a great question. I think it's, um, again, it's a culture piece. For, for me, and I, I won't coin this term, I, I would say one of, the, one of the best teams at fitting is down in, in Scottsdale at Psychologic. And yep. um, they, like the term, the, the, or the, the mindset of a fit more like a haircut as opposed to a perceptomy is really what I, I believe in and I don't think it's a one and done kind of mentality we most of our riders or a lot of our riders that are serious about cycling or triathlon are in three to four times a year tweaking things and every time they add a new piece of technology or equipment it's back to the drawing board of tweaking things as and when for me I would say ideal scenario would be get a fit in the autumn when you're going into indoor training get a fit before you go outdoors because things are going to change mm-hmm. and anytime along the way if anything changes in equipment or training load or race planning then you, you change that An example being you know one of our to give a case study we've had um a triathlete that went from age grouping and to and from introduction to triathlon probably five years ago to and, and getting injured to putting the systems in place putting the prevention in place putting her team in place and one of those aspects was the fit and went from just doing triathlon to qualifying for olympic half and, and ironman world distances so um or world championships. So the challenge there is that you can't, the fit is going to change if you're going to be doing an Olympic to an Ironman, for yes, example. So for sure. that for example, it's not like she got one fit in the year. That was, she, we probably saw her six or seven times in the year for, for tweaks here and there. But really the mindset is more, it's, it's a piece to the, to the team like, like it is when you go and get your hair cut where you might change your style from a winter cut to a, a summer fashion look. It's it's kind of that same frequency or mentality as opposed to, as I said, just, just chop it off and you're done. Yeah. I really like that answer because it's, you know, it's, it's fairly, it's fairly straightforward. If, you know, if I can try to boil it down, if, if something changes in you or your training or your bike, you should uh, get a refit. Yeah. And it, it, I think, Exactly as that says, is that if you 
if you saw the benefit in the first place, the rationale is hasn't changed. That what's changed is if, if anything in you or your biomechanics or your flexibility is changing, then you need you need the fit to change as well. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And I think the whole point of training is to elicit some kind of change, whether it's improved physiology or at least delaying any degradation of uh, of power output or anything like that. So it would it would only make sense from that standpoint that as your body changes and becomes more powerful or more adapted, that your your bike fit should also change to match that. Yeah, definitely. And I think I mean w- one of the things that I've really enjoyed integrating in recently is is the four eyes. Um, virtual wind tunnel stuff and the the cool part to that and for us using it is that i i would preface to say i think in the wrong hands it's a dangerous tool and what i mean by that is if someone Mm -hmm. googles it or just goes and gets a virtual wind tunnel scan and says okay this is the best position for me to be aerodynamic that's a very dangerous game to play first and foremost because if you're not comfortable you're going to move. And if you move, you're not aerodynamic. So just just matter of fact, your drag is going to go up dramatically. If you're in a position that your body can't handle, you're going to get injured. As I said, you're going to be repetitively doing a motion that your body doesn't like. And it will not take long before your body gets very angry with you. So in the wrong hands, it's a, it's a, a dangerous tool. In the right hands, it's a, it's a really fun tool. So we have in the right hands, an example being working with a local triathlete that wants to qualify for Kona. So we look at it and say, right, you can, we can show you three minutes based on the scan. If we can raise the seat up by two centimeters, you can be three minutes faster in an Ironman bike split. That's, that's the difference between qualifying and not for this athlete. Um, however, we know that at the moment, he doesn't have the flexibility in his hamstrings to get there. So it's a really fun tool to integrate into the into the plan and the why to say right whether it be strength whether it be flexibility whether it be pilates we're going to be working with you to get that two centimeters organically so that we can then continuously progress you into that more aggressive position on the bike which aerodynamically will shave off two to three minutes of time so really fun if it's used right really dangerous if it's not and I completely agree with with your assessment there. Um, there's a good example that I saw with Cycling Canada where they were actually using some of the saddle uh, saddle pressure mapping, and they were using it in the velodrome. So as the rider was going around the <clears throat> the lap, they were able to see how it shifted. And even though he was in a pretty aerodynamic position, they noticed that he was shifting two or three times a lap, where he would slide forward towards the nose of the saddle and then shift himself backwards. So they they made some changes to it, and as a result, he actually got more aerodynamic and more comfortable and was able to maintain his position a lot better. Um, So that was um, not necessarily using the virtual wind tunnel technology, but looking at aerodynamics and looking at some of the other tools that you have in the toolbox to help reach that goal of becoming more aerodynamic and more comfortable at the same time. And when we were talking earlier about maintaining motivation, like I think something like this is actually a really good tool for it because it says okay, this is my goal for right now. I've got some time to work on flexibility. And, you know, this is the procedure that I can use to follow that, whether it's Pilates or strength training or stretching. Um, And then by the time the next race comes around, you're much more prepared because you've had that motivation, you've had that goal to push towards. Yeah, I I totally agree. And going to the the GB mic 
this. Where what I, what I love that they've done is is taken something that's so high tech and so complicated from a biomechanical perspective, and allowed it to be used a lot more freely and a lot more day to day from by fitters like myself, and and it allows you to you know on a real simplistic level take three different saddles and apply them depending on what the person is showing you. For example, um, if someone is not stable, this, you can strategically say, right, they will more likely fit a certain type of saddle, which will give them more stability and avoid rocking. And therefore, it will calm down any noise, so to speak, i.e. movement, which then allows for power to go directly to the pedal and not in trying to stabilize the pelvis. So it's, an, it's a small example of where they just focus on, they, they focus on specifics, which are variables that you can control to allow the athlete to just do their thing. And then you take, you take the variables like that to the aerodynamic screens, for example, and, and the fits to say, this is, this is when, you're, when you're frustrated with the current isolation issues and, and how the world is looking right now, this gives this kind of lights that fire again of saying you've got plenty of work to do right now. You've got plenty of things to focus on, whether it be flexibility, whether it be calming the pelvic, calming that noise down in the pelvis, um, as you now feel more comfortable on the saddle, um, to do, to get the, the work done with the coaches. Because I think one of the most important things here that I don't want to brush over is one some of the biggest success we have had has been that we work very closely with with the other teams whether it be coaching whether it be um chiros osteopaths etc who are also in massage therapists who are also part of that athlete's journey and and keeping the communication clear so when i say train smarter not harder if i've made a change and the coach doesn't know this or if i don't want the person doing high volume then the coach has to know that. And one of the big things that I say in, in more age group slash amateur level that sets us apart is that we communicate with the coaches. So, which is from a gold standard perspective and in high performance teams is just a basic, but we're trying to take that and, and apply it to the masses. Yeah, for sure. I uh, I think that that is critically important. There's no way that you can operate in vacuums because you're absolutely right. You will you will undo what the other team is trying to do if you if you don't talk to each other, and that's that is critically important. I totally agree. And I think a lot is lost in translation as well. I think that's a really important thing to talk about as well. Is that if I owe it to the athlete to explain what I'm doing, whether it be from a consent perspective or whether it be more important from a buy-in, so they they get they get what the changes are and they understand the why, but there's still a lot lost in translation when they go back to the Cairo or the massage therapist or the coach and says, John did this because of that. And it's, you know, the detail is lost at that point. Whereas if I just speak to the coach directly, they know exactly what the athletes are going to come back and tell them. So, but they've heard it from me. 100%. Uh, John, you've mentioned this topic uh, a couple of times in your answers to our other questions, but I want to spend a little bit of time digging into it. And that is uh, specifically strength training and you can, you know, uh, resistance training, you can, you can apply that to you or you can stretch it out to Pilates or yoga or, or stretching. But uh, the, the kind of the broad question where I want to start with this is 
where do you see the greatest value of some kind of non swim bike run training for triathletes and uh, how do you apply it with your clients i think it's it's massive again to your to your point in in a vacuum or in isolation it's useless in as part of the puzzle it's absolutely integral and it will be the difference between one getting to start line and two um getting personal best and beating the competition so or whatever it is that they're, they're striving for. But it is a game changer if you do it right. But in the same breath, is it will be game over if you do it wrong. And I think that's one of the first things to talk about is when you don't do things right, it's, it's almost ironically going to have a, um, a bigger impact negatively than, than you, you imagine. And that's, that's the irony of it all is you, you go to the gym, you, you lift weights, you you're doing something proactive and the effort is there and yet it's lost in, in the detail or it's lost in the specificity. So the first thing I would say is that we need to, you need to have, find balance in the body. And what I mean by that is if you take the analogy of, of a soccer team, you're going to have different strengths and different players. And if just to give you to keep with that analogy, if you say to the guys, if you throw the ball up in the air and you're practicing headers, the tall guy heads the ball and you say, right, you keep heading the ball over and over and over again. Come game time, when when a cross comes in or the ball is in the air and the short player needs to head it, he hasn't been practicing. He hasn't worked on the technique. He has no idea how to do it. So coming back to swim, bike, run, if you don't, if muscles that work in patterns are not each isolated in the strength piece, then the strong muscles become strong, the weak become weaker. Hmm. And that doesn't create balance. What that creates is um, tight muscles, which often are, are weak and then poorly managed by being stretched out. And you take something weak and you stretch it out, you're going to make it even weaker. So you're reinforcing a problem. And then by doing so, the muscles which were compensating have to compensate more. So you have a vicious cycle with with strength training being done badly, where if you can isolate the muscles which are either inhibited or weak, get them online, so to speak, get them with the fuse box turned on so that when you send a message to them to work, they respond, then you can go into a training plan and a strength plan and in isolation work on strength. So that might be focusing on uh, specific muscles in isolation from there creating a base and that often in early season is probably going to be higher reps lower load more so to just get them online and and responding the the quality of a, a strength program in my opinion and in, in, in athletes that i would be building this for would be high load low reps um the various different ways to do that. Personally, I would go on a three to five rep type of um, workout with five to nine sets for that for that day. Um, the way I would like to see that is if you, there are various different ways to find out what that high load equals. But in in real simplistic terms, if you can do if you're trying to do a high load. Um, low repetition exercise 
and you can do it more than six times, it's not high load. So that to me is kind of my cutoff where I say, if you're not failing by five, by six repetitions, load needs to go up. Okay. So it's not, it's not low load. It might not be the kind of the maximal strength that, that, you know, weightlifters are used to or, or power lifters are used to, but it's when you, when you talk low load to, I think the average human being, they assume that this is something that they can, a, a load that they can tolerate for 15 to 20 repetitions. So that's not what we're talking about here. No. And, and when I say high, when I, when I was talking low load, I mean that when you're trying to isolate, when you're trying, this isn't, this isn't in your strength training. This is before you get there in your preventative screen, in your rehab, right. it's the same. Are the key muscle groups working? And in that scenario, when I'm trying to just create a pathway to, for example, the psoas in the hip, yeah. it's a, a very, very important muscle for, for biking and running. And it attaches to the spine. It gives us a lot of stability. It's chronically managed badly, in my opinion. Your hips are often tight, and the psoas often, in isolation, tests weak. And if it's weak and you stretch it, you're making it weaker. Yes. Instead, if we strengthen it in isolation, it will improve range because it will trust it. It will trust itself to go further. If you strengthen it in a way that's not isolated, your iliacus or your other hip flexors will just take over. In which case, that psoas muscle is taking a free ride. It's not actually being strengthened. And everything you're doing in your strength is just almost reinforcing the problem of imbalance. So when you're trying to isolate in that scenario, if you've got psoas working, then work it with quality, work it with high repetition just to get it familiar. It's like when you're trying to learn a language, you're practicing how you say the, the, the word over and over again, just with quality. That's more in, in the pre-game I'm talking. Okay, got it. Talk strength. When I talk about strength plan, I'm talking high load, low reps. Mm-hmm. Which is which is familiar. And are you talking about, and are those more compound joint exercises versus isolation exercises when you're talking about uh, strength training in season? Yeah, and, and I think, yes. And I would say what we want to do is, um, it, it will change as the season goes on as well. Obviously, it needs to be, there's an element to strength training. There's an element to certain drills which help with different sports. Um, but there's also, there's there's variation, whether it be compound versus when we then move to on on pull deck and doing cable work. So there's really just depends on where we're at in the season and what the training commitments are for that period of time. Um, and, and what the training approach is that that coach and athletes are working on, some some work on on like blocks of time to say this month is a swim block and their bike and run are going to be a lot lighter. So that might change how we do our strength program for that period versus others that are just saying I'm equaling it. Nothing's changing in my swim, bike, run distribution in this period of time. So um, in terms of how I would periodize that, I would say it's more a case of, um, as I said, get things active, get things online early on in the season, early on in that off season, going into the training camp, going into the base build rather. Then you're building your strength plan probably two to three times a week. Again, the two to three more so based on that repetition. So I would say you're 
you're likely going to be doing two to three, probably three if the quality is there um, in in the main part of the season and then probably scale it back a little bit in, in the race period of time of the season and go more specific, go more for activation as opposed to strength, I say. Cool. You mentioned the psoas as being an issue for a lot of people, and that that makes perfect sense because we most of us sit quite a bit, and that that's what makes it tight, I suppose. Um, would you be able to generalize other problem, or would you be able to generalize and give uh, give some idea of other potentially problematic muscle groups that folks should be focusing on in isolation again in the in the early season or base season uh or is that too or or would you need to see the individual to really assess you need to see the individual but i mean to to the question i would say there are there are go-tos that i want to make sure are, are fundamentally there and it's there are things it's almost like you, you stop the you stop the conversation and um, and focus on getting something on online and, and able to fire, and you don't move on until you get that. So, so as for me is is a very important one. Generally speaking, anything that attaches to the spine is going to be a stability um, generator. And what we want to do to to give you the more the global answer is that you, we we have certain groups that are designed for stability, and we have certain groups that are designed for mobility. And okay. the notion is you need stability for mobility. And what happens in practice is as as compensators and as creatures that like the path of least resistance, it's easier to get stability from the moving muscles, from the bigger, stronger muscles. The problem is it's not sustainable. And that's usually what we find is that when you get those aches and pains, when you get that tightening up of muscles, that are supposed to be moving muscles it's because they're also stabilizing so for me early on in the season in the off season going into a base build i would want to focus on do they have good core and when i say core i don't mean how many sit-ups can they do or how long can they hold a plank what i mean sure. by core is can they maintain stability without compensating one of the biggest compensators is holding your breath so mm. Another example is if you have is knowing the athlete's history and a lot of triathletes. If, if you grow up doing triathlon, great. If you let's take someone that came from swimming or synchro, if if you have someone coming from synchro where you hold your breath a lot, it's a lot of anaerobic. It's a lot of big breaths in and hold for going underwater. They are going to be very um, maladapted when you then put them into long distance because they're used to getting stability from holding their breath. So mm. if I'm testing stability on an individual and they're holding their breath, they're not stable. And they're certainly not stable when I'm trying to put them in the field and get them to run a half marathon or a full marathon, they're not going to be able to get that stability holding their breath or they're going to turn blue. That is super interesting because I've got a, a bit of a sidebar question maybe because, um, you know, when we're trained to do uh, powerlifting, weightlifting, you do hold your breath, right? The Valsalva maneuver is all about bracing the diaphragm and the, you know, the trunk in order to lift maximal weight. So do you think that that's harmful for endurance athletes or is that just something you need to do for, for heavy lifting? I think, I think it's necessary for heavy lifting, but that to me is not 
gaining stability. That's strength. And I think they're different things. You want so you can train them simultaneously. They're con- you can right. concurrently train them. Okay, fair. Yeah. That's, that's what I was striving at. Okay. Yeah, and I would say the first thing you want to do, and the first thing when you're doing strength, because it's a great question, and it's a, it's a really important distinguishing factor. The first thing in that scenario is your setup is to get yourself stable, whether that's from a golf swing, whether that's from an Olympic lift. It's you want to make sure you're stable, and that's not through holding your breath. That's first off finding finding neutral, finding form, finding um, almost alertness in your muscles and in your in your ability to hold that starting position before you then say, right, engage, so to speak. Hmm. Okay. Yep. So it's a great question. I would say you need to do both. You need to focus on core, which you're going to get more so from an activity like yoga, like Pilates, like um, activation of, of certain muscle groups and the strength work is going to be working more towards performance and, 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 um, and that side of the, the sport. That's awesome. And uh, I've told, I realize I've totally hijacked this conversation by like going deeper down this rabbit hole of strength training, which is something I certainly, I enjoy doing and coaching. It's definitely like, I wouldn't say flavor of the month, but it is certainly right now. <laughs> it right is now. a little bit. It is when you, when you talk injury prevention and when you talk performance, it's where a lot of the research is is supporting nowadays. And and you talk about things evolving over time, whether it be in the fit versus in in professional sports and in in injury prevention. We went from back in the day where you'd hold a stretch for thirty seconds as as your warm up to strength and cable work and, and functional exercise so it's things have evolved and strength is certainly one of the most important things it's just doing it right in the right at the right time makes sense of course yeah it's uh it has it has to make sense to what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day of course definitely I mean, it goes back to my point of if i'm trying to do this for a hockey player i'm not going to give them i'm not going to be able to give them that functional component that they need because i don't understand hockey whereas for swim, bike, run, I get it. And I know what's involved for each part of it. So I feel like it's an important, um, this is an important necessity that you need to have in your rehab team or in your strength plan to have that specificity and that functional component to how you're going to be racing. You mentioned, uh, John, you mentioned warm-ups very briefly when you were saying that, you know, that we don't hold stretches for 30 seconds during warm-ups anymore. What's your take on warm-up and uh, what do you recommend folks do for warm-ups for the, you know, the, the three disciplines, if there's any difference really at all, or for racing? Because there's, uh, there's been a lot of research that I've seen that's come out recently that is, uh, beca- that is showing that there's a little bit of uh, there, there, that we need to pay attention less to warm-ups than we once thought. What's your take on all of that? I think it's, I mean, the, I would say my thought, on, oops, my thought on it is that we we need to focus on training smarter, not harder, as I mentioned. I know I've, I mentioned it a few times, but for me, we often forget one of the most important principles, which is the KISS principle, i.e. keep it simple. Um, the first part, the first clue is in the name, which is warm up. And the focus of a warm up is to get your body temperature up, um, yep. which in itself is, is something that sometimes we forget. So if you're going to do a warm up in shorts on a cold day, you're, it's not efficient. 
So whereas if you go in sweatpants, if you go in um, compression socks and shorts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're, you're cutting corners, i.e. training smarter to then get body temperature up quicker to get to where you need to be for performance and, and tissue pliability. I think the other component is the demands of the activity. So if you have to, tra- you have to warm up and, and train as if you're racing. And, and for the race that you're going to do. So if you're doing a tempo workout, the warm-up needs to include some tempo drills. You don't want to be going into a tempo drill having not done any of that in, in a week because your body's going to get a very rude awakening. So right. for, for me, I think it's more just making it dynamic, making it functional, but also the focus in a warm-up is more just neurokinetic firing. And for me... That means giving a heads up to the muscle groups and, and the movement patterns that you're going to need in five minutes' time. Give them the heads up that you're, you're going to be needed. And you do that by intru- like progressively getting them into that movement. So with dynamic movement, with functional exercises, with tissue temperature coming up. So to me, that's more important. And I also feel like it's easier to um to respect adaptation and, and just go with go with the flow if you've got that base. And I think that's the other component to the, the research that's supporting re- um, warm-up not being as essential. It applies if if you have a base. So I just want to clarify one thing that you said about the priming that neurokinetic firing uh, of your muscles, which makes all the sense in the world to me, especially if you're gonna do any kind of intensity. But do you accomplish that by doing you know, the sport, let's say we're, we're sticking with running, you know, uh, by doing higher intensity running, if you're going to plan to do a VO2 max run, uh, or are you incorporating other kind of, you know, dynamic mobility work in there that isn't necessarily running? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. I would start with things like ABCs. If you're doing your running, I would start by making sure that you're including strides in your, in your just get into the run, get into a, some, some warm-up laps type of thing on the track. So I think the the notion behind it is just it's almost like a systems check to your body. So when you when an aeroplane takes off, they go through a system check. Say, does every button respond when it's flicked on? And that's basically what you're trying to do with a with a warm-up of just saying, guys, A, B, C, D, E, G, whatever. It's just saying, when I call upon you in this next half an hour, are you going to respond or is the neighbor going to respond? If the neighbor responds, then you're, you're going down that slippery slope of, of imbalance. Right. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I haven't, well, I've been kind of sitting on the, as a fly on the wall for this conversation. I don't have a ton to add to it, but it's been very interesting because you guys obviously have the physiology, physiology background and I don't, but um, I'm taking some good tips away from this conversation. Yeah. I, I, I think just generally speaking, it, it's more just about, being strategic and, and setting yourself up for success. And especially with, with swim, bike, run, there are a lot more variables than you can control, especially on the bike. There are so many more variables than you can control than in other sports. And you're dealing with a lot less risk of trauma. You're dealing with a lot less um, uncontrolled variables. And that just, if, that just allows you to, to set, set up for success. Well, I think, Andrew, does that run through our list of questions for John? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but um, I think this has captured the core of what we really wanted to accomplish today. Um, what might be interesting is following up in a couple of weeks and having more of a discussion about things that people can do from their homes to keep themselves healthy during this COVID lockdown. But um, but I think maybe we'll we'll save that for a little bit later on. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I'm more than I can I'm more than happy to talk anytime. So I think going to the isolation piece again, I I would encourage people just to remember their why, and it's just such an important thing that we we usually um, forget or have an oversight on, and that's going to be certainly the focus, um, along with now is an opportunity to get the things done we didn't have time to do, whether that be focus on form, whether that be focus on, as I said, for example, that individual needing the hamstring. Like there are take things off as projects. It's 30 day challenges for yourself um, that in the big picture are going to pay off. And had this, had this global pandemic not happened, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do, or you would have put it down the priority order because more fun, things would have been higher up. I think the mindset too is more so just we, we have a choice right now. You can, with with the social isolation and with the current um, situation as is, you have a choice of going on the defense and sitting on your couch and watching Netflix, or you have the choice of going on the offense. And whether that be Zwift, whether that be a home exercise plan, whether that be a virtual appointment. Um, and it's just... It's it's going on the attack to say, I still remember my why, it's still on my fridge, it's still back, it's the wallpaper of my desktop or whatever it is. I'm still focusing on that. And more than ever, whilst my competition or whilst everyone else is sitting at home watching Netflix more than they're doing anything else, I'm focusing on that. So really treat it as an opportunity to specialize or go through a specialty phase for smaller specific targets that you wouldn't have otherwise had time for. Definitely. And those smaller specific things are going to be what makes the foundation for, for success and, and it makes the foundation for a year, a better year than you had last year, because last year you didn't have the time. So this is uh, really an opportunity for you to out prepare your competition. Um, so what I'll say is anyone listening who's in the 35 to 39 age group category, uh, don't listen to this advice and just sit down and watch Netflix. But, uh, <laughs> any other age group that's not competing directly against me, uh, feel free to take the advice. I think it's really interesting to see how, how the rest of the season unfolds, depending on when things can pick up again, because certainly for world, for world championships and different qualifying races, it's going to be really interesting to see one, do they even happen? But two, how do they, how do people qualify for them now with half the amount of races left? Yeah. Andrew and I talked a little bit about that. We may, uh, we may have a couple of folks on the show to, to talk about this very subject, just do some speculating because just like so many other things in life right now, that is another uncertainty for everyone. Um, so I, w- I just want to put in, throw in my two cents on what you guys were just talking about. And it's, uh, I agree with you, John, uh, that this now is a great opportunity to work on those um, otherwise lower priority training imperatives. Uh, the only thing I'll say is that it's, it's also important to be kind to yourself during this weird time. I know, and I'll, I'm going to just cite my personal example because it's the one that I'm living right now. My training has gone from maybe 10 to 12 hours a week 
to two or three hours a week. And that's because I've got two little kids just like, well, John, you have three. Uh, but now they, they were in, well, one was in kindergarten, one was in daycare, and now they're both at home full time. And that my time to train was when they were uh, in care. So my, my time to train now has gone to essentially nothing. <laughs> so it's, um, it's important to understand that, that there, there are folks with uh, different circumstances that have, uh, and those circumstances have changed, obviously, as a result of this virus. And uh, the the most important thing is for us to kind of get through it. Um, so if if you're one of those people who, who does have way more responsibility now than you did three, four weeks ago, I don't even know how long we've been quarantined, um, then it's important to to not be too hard on yourself that you can't also keep up with your training. I know I, I went through it where I had a really tough go for a couple of weeks where I was kicking myself for, you know, not wanting to get on my bike at nine o'clock at night. And uh, I've, I've had to let it go because it was just not... For me, it was it was not um, it was not a reality that I could uh, that I could fit all of those pieces into my life at this point. Yeah, I think it, I think that's probably a lot more um, a much more sensible option. I think the issues that you can't avoid or injury are it's not just physiology; it's there's psychosocial. There's there's limitations on yourself. Um, again it's a longer conversation but certainly um how much sleep you get how much how your nutrition is doing stress these are all direct indicators of injury prevent uh, of injury occurrence so it's it's also being strategic and saying right now is not the time to 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 do it and if you if you focus on that why you remember what it is I often tell people you're not going to your race is not going to be made today or this week. This is it's a really important thing to not be short-sighted on and say you can be a lot more strategic by scaling things back right now having your body and your mind in a in a better place so that when you are able to go out you're in a better position you're in a better condition um and that will lead to success far, far more likely than, than the alternative. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you mentioned sleep and that one's key and I won't belabor it because it's, you know, I think it's, it, if it's not obvious, it should be. And I've had this conversation with my athletes who are in a similar, similar place to me. And they'll say, look, you know, I'm either going to ride this bike or I'm going to get my sleep. And then the answer is always, I don't care what the workout is. You go get your sleep. Like there's a certain minimum threshold that if you're not going to be able to get because you need to get your workout in, then it's because you've had, you know, the 15 hour day uh, for whatever reason. And you you take the sleep uh, every single time. There's no there's no exception to that. I'm totally on board with you there yeah and i think that's and and that's evidence guided that's not me just not me you know thinking that up from thin air that's yeah agreed you know you need you need seven hours a night to avoid injury and that's if you're not training yeah that's a that's that's floor so yeah i mean lots lots of areas all of this just comes back to i think the, the, the way i'd like to to end on is just reminding people that the team is still there. Your coach, your therapist, um, your peers that you were training with are still around. They're still there, whether it be virtual, whether it be on the end of a phone and just, just reach out. 
stay, keep connected, get virtual appointments, go on Zwift, whatever it is. But the isolation, as they keep as they keep saying, it's a physical isolation. It's not. It's not everything else. That's an excellent point. And that's, uh, you see a lot of folks on social getting together and doing, you know, post run Zoom sessions and, and obviously Zwift and even Trainer Road introduced a, uh, uh, an option for riding with your friends for doing a video ride together. So there are options for that. And I think people are understanding and, and are embracing it. What I do want to highlight, and because it's topical since we're talking to John here, is that your therapy team is available to you and that's something that i don't think that people fully appreciate and so there's there's two components here one is the you know the connection or three i would say one is the the connection with people who were important in your journey as an athlete uh two is being able to get the care that you may need because you, you know most of us are still training to some extent and and injuries do happen and then three, also, look, this is uh, this is kind of a call for me as a, as a local, well, local to me, uh, a small Canadian business uh, talking to another small Canadian business that uh, we need support. And uh, and it's it's entirely possible that for you to connect with your healthcare team and uh, allow them to help you while you are helping them. So that's an important consideration, too. Yeah, I think it's a really, really important point. I would, I would, as I said, as a, as a business owner, I would stress that. I'm making these recommendations from best practice. And I think that's just the one thing I would say is my job is to tell people and everything I say today and in my sessions, my experience and my skill set is as a rehab professional. I'm not someone's an accountant. I'm not there to give them advice on how many sessions can they afford or any of that. That's not my prerogative. Sure. They're asking me what is the best training, what's the best rehab, what's the best strength, etc. But at the moment, I would say these small businesses are, are hurting. There's no getting around it. And I think we don't need to press pause on everything. There's there is the infrastructure in place with virtual appointments to keep momentum going forward. And that keeps everything going forward. That keeps businesses, that keeps um, goals for, for races, that keeps health and well-being. All of, all of the above can progress and don't, doesn't have to just sit still and, and stagnate or regress for that matter. So with that being said, this might actually be a good opportunity for people who who do have their local physio that might be restricting appointments or shutting down. Um, it might be a good opportunity to reach out to someone like John who does the virtual appointments. So um, you may not get 100% of the, the ability from someone treating you hands-on, but certainly it can help get you through this, this tougher period that we're going through right now as yeah. opposed to going cold turkey on treatment. Definitely. And I'd also say that it, this... I would look at it as an opportunity. I look at this and say there are people in Ontario right now that might be looking for a sports-specific therapist to bounce ideas off or for a consult. I don't need to physically be in front of them to, to be there. And it's the same with coaching. Coaching has been there for a long time now where you don't have to be in front of the athlete to coach them well. It's, a different, it's, it's just a different piece to the pie. And a, a, it's not necessarily everything, but it's it certainly helps. So how would people get in touch with you then if they want to book one of these virtual appointments? Mostly on the website. So we can you can book online. I would say our emails are on, on the website as well. So um, that's definitely probably the most efficient way, whether it be email or whether it be online booking. We have virtual appointments there and we you know we can 
collaborate by email as well if need be but as i said i look at this as an opportunity to to take distance out of the equation and no different to for example with some of the um the saddle lines for example where we're, we're trying to integrate the ability to ship those across the country as well so we'll post all the information on the show notes there but it's intrinsy.ca correct yeah excellent yeah, John, I'm waiting for a uh, for a Jabiamai's Stride Soft. If you get one, <laughs> so is everyone else. My local, yeah. yeah, my local shop hasn't had them for a while, or that he got one and he sold it right away. So if you get, it just yeah, we're, we're we're definitely hoping that I mean they are back in stock, so we are hoping that it will be pretty soon. And and the the latest thing for us is that we'll be able to. So we're hoping to be in a position to distribute them in, in Canada, we hope, um, with with the bike, um, which hopefully again will will cut some some barriers away from people from getting best practice or getting something that they want just because of it, where in the past they weren't able to just go somewhere they were located. Yeah, when I uh, when I go visit Andrew, I'll uh, I'll drop by for a bike fit because I'm. <laughs> My my fitting myself is kind of I've hit a bit of a wall. I need I need something else, at least a different saddle. But that's another conversation. Yeah, definitely. The saddle. I mean, you guys had Daniel on last last month. I mean, it's it's so fascinating. As I said, the art behind it and and the science is just so specific that it's it's such a exciting aspect to be able to control and and affect so many aspects of the of the biking experience. Well, John, this was a pleasure. It's always uh, it's always really interesting to talk to bike fitters and and uh, physiotherapists and strength folks because that's something that is very near and dear to me, and it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and uh, and looking into. So, um, thanks again for taking the time. No worries. Thanks for having me on. And as always, I'll put the call out to uh, support your local business in this time of uh, uncertainty and of, uh, of financial difficulties for a lot of us. Um, and at the same time, support this podcast by giving us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks.